Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. Together with Smart Cities World, we've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I would like to thank our sponsor, the World Bank, and you for joining us on the Urban Exchange Podcast, the premier urban resilience podcast taking us around the world to meet people working on the front line. I will now hand you over to our host for this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Urban Exchange Podcast. I'm Lauren Sorkin, and I'm thrilled to have Kate McKenzie here with us today. Kate is the Executive Director of New York City Mayor Eric Adams' Office of Food Policy. Kate, thank you for being here. Thanks. It's really a treat. Thanks, Lauren. So, Kate, you've been working in the area of food and nutrition for almost two decades, really thinking about these issues deeply and making sure that communities, families, can all access healthy, nutritious food. And I understand that food equity is a big focus for the city of New York and for Mayor Adams as well. Can you give us some more insight into what it means to focus on food equity? How did this come about and why is this such a priority for New York? You know, many people, when they think of New York City, they think of, you know, of Times Square, of the Empire State Building, and many things that do not jump out to say that New York City is a very inequitable city. But the fact of the matter is that's the case. And whether, you know, one example here, if you consider poverty, New York City hovers around a 20% poverty rate overall, but that's masking the deep poverty that exists throughout many of our neighborhoods in neighborhoods in the borough of Brooklyn, frankly, all boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and the Bronx, certainly, poverty can be upwards of 50%. And so it's important, and that's the case for for any affliction, right? Whether it is health-related and income-related, physical access to food, you name it, and we have deep disparities across New York City. And so for Mayor Adams, clearly, he stepped into office looking to really address the extraordinary challenges of, of inequity. And my role within the food system and our food policies is to make sure that we're centering equity in everything that we do. And that could be, you know, when, um, which I know we'll chat a lot more about this, but the city serves meals in certainly in, in our school system, in our public hospitals, and in many other institutional settings to our most vulnerable. And many of those are are challenged um, from a quality perspective, from an access perspective. And so we want to drive equitable food system policies throughout our public meal program. Again, focusing on that vulnerable population and making sure that they have high quality, nutritious meals. That's one example. Um, But I could also go to talk about some of our restaurants and our minority women business enterprises and how we bring those types of of businesses um, more into the mainstream. So it really is an issue of understanding what's happening with the overall population in New York, that there is a lot of poverty that people don't see. 
right? Anywhere from 20 to 50% and making sure that the food policies that you create are going to target those communities where they are. You have so much experience in the food policy sector. You've really looked at this work from different sides, right? Both from civil society as well as being part of the city government. How do you see food evolving as a priority area for the city in terms of resilience and how communities bounce back? I think during the, you know, it's interesting, I I made the transition from um, non-governmental work into government work six months before the pandemic really took its, its grip on New York City in particular. And my desire in making that change was really to focus a lot more in an area that I didn't work closely in, which was the connection between food and climate. So we'll get to that. But I actually think that my experience certainly in dealing with crises and also in, in food, food programs and food access overall really was a great attribute to bring into this role because what we learned quickly, and you'll, you know, for many people, this is almost out of sight, out of mind, but it was, you know, thinking about how food trucks literally could cross state lines to be able to bring food into New York. Thinking about how our grocery store workers would not have a way to get to work because one, their children were now home and in schools, our subways perhaps were not working. And the entire pause order that we were uh, experiencing put food very front and center for people's minds. Um, it put food workers very clear. It put the fact that our, you know, the supply chain shortages that we're still sort of, you know, navigating through and really thinking about the need for, for shorter supply chains. These are all things that from a resiliency perspective are important all of the time, but it took us a real crisis to be able to, to think about how, again, food policy can, can really focus on and support shorter supply chains or how we can make sure that our food jobs are particularly bolstered and lifted up. And then very like acutely thinking about, again, the access perspective of food and how people need to be able to access food, whether they are homebound, whether they are, are challenged with income and cannot afford food, and whether our grocery stores and farmers markets in particular are able to stand up in times of you know, great, beautiful weather and times also when we're, we're gripped with severe weather, which seems to happen a lot more frequently than not. So it was really through, I think, that pandemic that we were able to create our, our 10-year food policy plan. And we didn't have to convince people that food policy was an, an, a cross-cutting issue, that it impacted health, that it impacted economy, that it impacted environmental sustainability, and so much more. You point out something very relevant, I think, to all of our listeners, all of our cities, Kate, which is that before COVID, people really thought about food policy in terms of nutrition. And then when we got into the pandemic, those main challenges that you outlined, supply chain, right, how you were going to get access to food, actually food work, right? right? Who were the food workers? Starting to think about food workers as essential workers and food supply chain workers in that framing was something that I don't think that many of our cities had considered before. And then, as you said, thinking about what a more 
challenged climate means, when we have extreme events that we will have more often, that that will bring us new challenges that that we're not used to. And what does that mean for our particular city and our supply chain? I think, as you said, it, it woke us up to these integrated challenges. And you were just talking about the food plan, the 10-year plan. You talked about those challenges. Having that integrated approach, talk to me a little bit about then the opportunities that that opened up for you. Sure. Were you able to advance things that you don't think you might have before? hundred percent. And, you know, and I, I do think that just recognizing that for many of the of the food system activists across the world, these were not connections that, you know, that uh, they were known, but it really took, I think, the pandemic to really center them on the public agenda. And so, you know, the next thing that happened um, after the pandemic, um, very importantly for our city, and I think, you know, personally, from a, from a food perspective, is we, we have an Adams administration. And so when Mayor Adams came into office, you know, he brought with him certainly a conviction, a personal and moral conviction to the classic anti-hunger work and the need to feed people. But also he really expanded that to center, you know, health in particular. And he uses, um, you know, I think it's a tagline of his right now, and I will say it as often as possible, but really making sure that we, and I think the we here is certainly New York City, but I would say it's policymakers and leaders around the world should no longer be feeding our healthcare crisis. And so that was initially really the impetus for um, what became our plant-based agenda, if you will. Right. And so making sure that through the lens of nutrition, food and nutrition standards, we created maximums for the number of times or a a ceiling for the number of times that red meat in particular could be offered during the course of a week and introduced minimums for the number of times that plant based um, whole food, plant based protein should be offered. And to be clear, this isn't because Mayor Adams was really hot to trot on this, but it was because we have a pattern and cadence of issuing food and meal standards for all of the meals that we serve. And those are science-based, evidence-driven recommendations that just happened to be coming out during the time that he was in, in his initial weeks in office. And so really using that platform, certainly to make sure that from a health perspective, we are addressing food and what's on the plate, but also then very clearly making that bridge to food and climate. And so these types of policies really are cross-cutting, right? Because by the way, while we're, redu- while we're really centering in on improving life expectancy, that unfortunately was really taken um, a, t- a turn during the pandemic, through our chronic disease prevention strategies, we're addressing what's on the plate. And also those same things that we want to see less of on the plate and empower people to be aware of and choose healthier options, those are things that are better for our environment and better for long-term climate change. Absolutely. I mean, we are in the United States. We are living in a crisis situation with non-communicable diseases. And I think what you pointed out is that there was this opportunity that was created between a public awareness and a real community need 
for healthier foods and addressing this issue with the political will from Mayor Adams and the science, right? That you were able to align those three things. And I think, you know, for, for our cities, I think that's a very powerful lesson that when you can do that, you can really open up these opportunities and then advance the work. So through the plant powered program, we see that you're aiming to increase food security. You're promoting access and consumption of healthy foods, supporting economic opportunity and environmental sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit more about the program, what its specific goals are, and who are the key stakeholders in this? How have you shaped and formed this agenda together? Sure. Plant Powered Fridays are days in the public school system in which the main entree that is provided is just that. It's plant powered, right? And as a mother of two public school students, there's so much that is sort of very intentional about that name plant powered, right? You're, it's, it's energetic, it's empowering, it's talking about what's on the plate and what's not missing, if you will, from that plate. So we feature, um, you know, recipes that have been cultivated and curated from a lot of notable chefs across the city. And again, chefs that represent the, the, the students in our school system. They come from different cultures and different ethnicities and bring in different ingredients and flavor profiles that, uh, that some of our, our foods that we were offering maybe didn't, didn't lift up as much. So part of this is really, you know, making sure that changes appropriately at a pace to make sure that things are received well. But we wanted to create actual recipes and celebrate the culinary experts in our school system to really showcase what their skills can be and, and again, have a sort of a, a professional development opportunity here. So we went through, a, you know, certainly a long pattern of recipe exploration and taste tests by students. And look, like, you know, some kids, you know, I think this, the, I remember from my graduate school days, right? It takes kids on average an exposure of 15 times of tasting something before they determine that they, they like it and that it's going to become part of their habits. So particularly when we're talking about elementary school students, it is certainly an uphill battle to to get kids to experiment with anything that's new or different, but really also then making sure that we have an educational component that goes along with it. Again, the why. Also teaching kids certainly about where food is coming from and what's on your plate. The connection, of course, to, to feeling good and feeling healthy. And certainly making sure that for our youngest New Yorkers, right, our our, our, our youngest students are building those lifelong habits from an early age. But to be clear, this program is certainly offered in our, our high schools as well, all of the public school system and even our early child care settings. Um, and so this is, you know, sort of the, as the largest school district in the country, we're keen to be able to show our, our partner school districts and, and cities you know, our lessons. And look, it wasn't like out of the gates, a raging success. I want to be really clear around that. It's making sure that we're asking the right questions, that we're looking at, you know, what recipes and when what things are, are really, you know, have a high uptake, what things do we need to experiment with? But you know what, because we're such a diverse city, 
it's almost a wash because what is really like, you know, liked in one school is sort of a, a lesser favorite in another school. But again, it's really just that exposure. This is all sort of like articulations of our food standards. And so in our public hospital system, while it's not called Plant Powered Fridays, we have default options of plant-based meals throughout our public hospital system. So, you know, it's really this spirit and intentionality of how do we make the healthy choice, the easy choice, and bring in fold education along with that. I think that is so clear, Kate, that you're looking at this as a process. And I think that that is a really important message, that it doesn't happen all at once, but you set a very clear intention, which was we are powering our student body and we are going to power the recovery of patients in hospitals with plants, right? That that is not only possible, but it's desirable for various reasons. And then also setting an intention to celebrate the diversity in the city and bringing those flavor profiles in, experimenting with different menus. And I think for every probably urban practitioner and also parent who's listening to this, you know, we know that that first time you put something on the plate, it is probably not going to be a success. But that 15 times, right, that's powerful. And so if a kid is at school for years experiencing this, this becomes a part of their education. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's a really incredible intention. And, you know, Lauren, I want to bring up something too. Again, this is also, um, you know, you mentioned part of a, another reality for New York is that we are, you know, in the grips of very pervasive food insecurity, right? And so, I, you know, something that I also really appreciate about Mayor Adams is the connection to a, a personal experience with food, right? And so I want to be clear that while we are really promoting the plant-based options in schools and have very high uptake um, of, of students choosing those, there are always other things available, right? And so this is, again, trying to, to drive the healthy choice, but being mindful that this is a choice. And to be clear, there are four other school days, right? And so while we, you know, still have you know, meatless Mondays and plant-powered Fridays, there are many other days in the week. And again, it's this introduction of exposure for people. And so that's, you know, I think it's really important to know that, you know, this isn't um, an all or nothing experience here. This is really trying to drive and promote and nudge people in the direction of change. I want to turn our attention to another interesting program that you have going in New York, and that's this Queens Organics Curbside Program. What are the objectives of this pilot? And can you tell us a little bit about what the impact has been so far? Anything you know, interesting or surprising? Well, you know, this is another, I think, clear example of a not so obvious food policy, right? So we have our sanitation department we have about 24 million pounds of garbage a year. And I, you know, for at least 10 years, right, that the issue of food waste has become a global awareness and need to both, you know, reduce from a environmental perspective, but also, you know, the connections of how we're also in the grips of of food insecurity and, and in some cases hunger. 
And so the paradox of having and producing so much food waste is, is particularly vexing when you consider food insecurity. But nonetheless, you know, I think if we look at, again, from a good governance perspective, how do we initiate a composting program that the city had previously, but was uh, paused during the pandemic. And if I'm, if I'm honest, it, we, we really were struggling with, uh, with utilization. It was something that was not available citywide. Um, it was an opt-in program. And what the Queens pilot demonstrated, you know, and again, of that 24 million pounds at the city um, of garbage, a third of that is organics. A third of that is organics and um, theoretically should be able to be diverted for compost rather than and finding its way to a landfill. And so one of the things that, again, I think, you know, from, from a Department of Sanitation perspective, certainly from an environment and food policy perspective, we wanted to bring back a program, but have it be even better, right? Even better than what it was before. And the Queens program proved that, that we can do that. The Queens program in the first season diverted 12, almost 13 million pounds of organics. And that was something that was really important. And so beginning in a few short weeks, October 2nd, actually, we're going to start rolling out a citywide composting program, again, in an effort to make sure that we are diverting as much as possible organics from from the from landfills. And this will be sort of, you know, starting with, you know, yard waste, and then certainly uh, food waste as, a, as an addition to that. And, you know, and this is a, it's hard. It is, again, this is so much of this is about behavior change, right. And, Mm -hmm. and getting people to understand how to separate, you know, their waste ultimately differently. But, you know, we're, the expansion here is talking about a household level. We're also trying to do, um, you know, organic collections in schools and in any city, uh, city government office. So it's another, I think, you know, tool that we have to be able to connect some of our broader climate and environment goals to food policy and certainly, um, you know, big appreciation to our sanitation department for um, really thinking about that uh, program in a different way. You highlight the fact that, you know, both food choices and management of food waste and household waste, these are really lifestyle choices. These are household level issues and require behavior change. Has there been a lot of resistance to these programs and who have been sort of the best allies for these programs and where you face resistance? How have you overcome that? Um, Such an important question. And again, I'll go back to at the end of the day, particularly, you know, we haven't talked a lot about our our food emissions, but back in April, we uh, released an integrated inventory of both our, you know, longstanding carbon emissions of geographic emissions that occur in the city, but also folded in consumption-based emissions that considered the emissions that come from food. And it's, it's a little bit mind-numbing, if I'm really, uh, again, honest, too, because when you think about food emissions, they largely occur at the point of production or, at, you know, particularly when we think about beef and, and dairy, you know, the cows grazing and eating and doing everything that they do at that level, which is not um, on a the streets of, of New York. It's a lot of methane <laughs> um, that is not on the streets of New York, but, but ultimately, that product gets to New York. And so when we're thinking about 
really how do we reduce our food emissions, which I don't even think it's arguably, which is what we as a world must do if we're to meet our climate goals. Sort of the next frontier is really addressing um, the food and agricultural systems. This is about household level change. It's about changing what we buy. And again, making sure that, you know, that pulling in that personal choice, right? But how are we nudging people in the direction of, of smarter choices? And I think, you know, it's kind of a mutual benefit here again of like the, the climate friendly choice here is also the, the healthy choice for you as an individual. And I don't think, you know, I was speaking with someone recently and, you know, not many people think about the climate when they make their purchasing decisions. And particularly in a city like New York, when you can, you can buy, you know, products from all over the world. Um, you can also buy your milk from a New York farm and that's fantastic. Right. But I think it's really trying to drive those household level decisions. Now I really want to, um, call out some of my uh, colleagues and friends in London who have been doing, you know, a behavioral campaign there that is, you know, really, again, it's challenged because how do you measure the effects of, a, of, of an impression of an, of an ad, right? But these are nudges that we can help people to make. And so I think, you know, your question is about resistance. Some people really step into change with an attitude of, you know, bring it on, I'm here. And others get really nervous. And again, thinking about the fact that we are a government and trying to nudge people in the right direction. The last thing we want to be perceived of is a nanny state. That's not the kind of efforts that we're trying to, to operationalize. But we really also want to challenge our, our private sector uh, stakeholders and partners here in New York to model some of the things that we're doing in their corporate cafeterias and collectively strive to reduce our, our carbon emissions. We've set a goal of, uh, for, for, for partners that want to join us, 25% reduction um, over the course of the next several years. And But we as a city really want to see our carbon emissions attributable to our food purchases reduced by 33%. It's an ambitious goal and an important one. I mean, as you pointed out, the food system is at the heart of us meeting our climate targets, right? The EPA estimates that just the food waste, not even the food production, is responsible for somewhere around 8% right. of global emissions. And so a city the size of New York deciding to take that seriously, the separation, the changes that are required to do that is, is so important. My last question is really around that partnership between the city, the private sector, and communities. You, you talked about the need to have people come with comfort towards change. And clearly, as, as a government, you have the perception as a trusted partner, someone working for public good. What kinds of education and knowledge programs are you implementing in the community? And what do you think is important in terms of ensuring the sustainability of those programs? And what would you say to other cities? You know, you learned from London, certainly cities will be listening and learning from you today. What is it that you think that other cities could learn from the New York experience? Yeah, you know, um, I think from a very practical level, you know, we have, we've also rolled out um, within our public schools, something called a food education roadmap. It is not just about um, at all about you know our, our plant-based um, um, priorities, but it also it's about just building a connection to food, and you know this vision that when you walk into any one of our you know 
1,600 schools across the city. It should, it should exude sort of a culture of, of, of health and wellness, particularly through the lens of food. And we think about, you know, how kids are, are learning in their science class, many different things. How might we incorporate the growing of food or the metabolism of food, um, thinking about, you know, different things and ways in which food ultimately comes to us, certainly through through you know social studies and cultures and and math and reading there's so many ways that that food can be woven in to existing curricula and so we really want to make sure um, that in the classroom food is addressed but also in the school environment we've talked about the, the the cafeterias but also you know so many of our schools have very varying different forms of of school gardens Right. And that very real experience of seeing something grow and then tasting that or seeing and talking about, again, using that experience of how some neighborhoods have an abundance of food and others do not. These types of, of cues really just help the, the connection to food come alive, again, particularly for kids um, and, and students. But so I, I think, you know, that those are some examples, I think, also within our public hospital system. There's a whole campaign, again, about the why. It's really important to, you know, whenever we make some type of change, educating about the why. But I also think, you know, it's it's moments like this. It's talking about the work. It's finding champions. And certainly, you know, Mayor Adams, from a public health perspective and is, is keen to share his own personal journey about how he saved his life by changing what he ate, right? And that really resonates, particularly as a Black mayor for a city that is really, you know, in, you know afflicted. Our African-American, our Black and Brown communities really struggle with chronic disease. And if they're hearing from someone who himself has experienced that, that lived experience goes very, very far, and so really being a, a, a role model in that way is, is particularly helpful. And, you know, getting more, you know, we just had a great uh, piece in a local outlet called El Diario that talked about a senior center participant, someone who really loved the change in food that she was experiencing. And so focusing more, and, you know, this is, you know, our, we, we can't control media, certainly, but really getting and motivating people with feel-good stories about how things have um, have really changed their life and maybe how they didn't expect it to and how the more positive stories that because they exist that are out there, the better. And so it's a, it's a push-pull with media and particularly um, anything, I think, again, because food is so personal, but making sure that we are always growing and, and you know, doing things like podcasts and take, making visits and hearing again from students who maybe didn't have the best experience this is about not just like thinking about what's working great, but always being open to evolving our work, being open to trying things differently. And that mentality and sort of ethos that we bring to this work, I think also is part and part to why we're seeing such great success. Such a positive note on celebrating the change, finding those positive role models, but also not giving up and continuing the conversation, acknowledging what needs to be improved and continuing to work on it. So it might have been fake news when I said it was going to be my last question because I can't help but ask. We are sitting here in New York during uh, the UN General Assembly, during New York Climate Week. Yes. And, you know, COP28 is around the corner. We're going to have the first ever health day. Um, what are your hopes 
for COP this year in terms of food action and climate? And what what's your call to action to others in, in cities around the world who are working on food policy? You know, thank you for asking that question. I was at an event last night with a, a mix. I was on a panel and it was a, a real many different perspectives. And I have to say, there wasn't yet this mentality that I, um, or I think what needs to be a directive of food as a cross-cutting issue. And it was like, oh, the food, you know, food sector can't take this on. It has to. It has to, right? And I do, that is my hope is that, again, we think about the complexity of food, certainly, but really demanding from all different levels. And particularly, I would say, you know, our private sector actors here to, to sort of stand up to this need that we have for changing our emission for, for, for making an impact about our emissions. And, and, you know, it's not just about, we've got to think about, you know, as a buyer of food, we need to, we are thinking very clearly about the impact of some of the other values beyond price. And that needs to really be much more pervasive, I think, in the, the high level dialogues. Absolutely. You can almost imagine cities pooling their purchasing power like we've seen happen in the energy space, energy efficiency, and those kinds of policies and thinking about that from the food perspective. It's a terribly exciting and terribly important field of work. Thank you so much, Kate, for your leadership and for those words of inspiration and call to action. You heard it here, everyone. New York City is working on this and has an invitation to collaborate on it um, with other cities, private sector and communities around the world. So thank you so much again for being with us on the Urban Exchange, Kate. Thanks, Lauren. It's been a pleasure. Every year, more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 40,000 members gain access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than 2,000 cities, with new members signing up every single week. Our Urban Exchange podcast takes us around the world to meet people working on the front line. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We'll catch you next time.